The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So we're in Psalm chapter 27. Um, We're in a series right now that we just started last week. If you're new with us or if you missed last week, we're calling it Mythbusters. And the idea is each week through the summer, we're going to tackle one commonly held misconception about the Bible, about the church, about God, or about Christianity in general. We're going to do this through the summer, and then in September, when the church we're planting in Grants Pass Philippi launches, we, in conjunction with, with Philippi, will start walking through the book of Acts, which is a continuation of the book of Luke, actually. It's just part two of the same story. And so we'll be walking through that together with them starting in September. So for the summer, we're going to be doing this. Mythbusters each week, some significant or, or particular misconception people have about God, Christianity, the Bible, and the church, and diving into the Word to see what the truth is, and not just what the truth is, but why the truth is better than the thing that we're tempted to believe here outside. Um, sometimes these are things that people outside the church want to use to disarm Christianity. Sometimes these are things that we in our flesh just want to believe more than what the truth is. It seems better to us here. Whatever the case may be, sometimes we're just plain mistaken and we've been taught wrong. And so these are important things. Now I want to encourage you guys on something on this. First of all, number one, this is a really good series to be inviting people to come to church with you with because many of these things that we're going to tackle are reasons that people aren't coming to church right now. And so we're going to be really honest with some of these things. So, so a really good opportunity to invite people that maybe they're wrestling with things or people that have been part of the church but they left because of some of them. Today's in particular is a big one of those. And I want to tell you guys something. This is amazing. Um, I was shown an article this week um, that the Barna Group did a research poll throughout the United States, and they did this thing. They did a ranking first of what are the most churched cities in the United States per capita, and, and it doesn't mean just number of churches, it means percentage of the population per capita of a given city that is a, a regular, however they defined that, regular church goer right? Active in the church. And uh, one of the, uh, they're all in the South, as you would imagine, right? They're all in that. But but then they did least church cities in the United States. Um, And number seven, surprisingly, least church city in the United States is actually Redding, California, which has been burning in me for us to plant a church in Redding, California. So once we get Philippi up and running in Grants Pass and we celebrate that new church and all that kind of stuff, that is on my hit list. I'm telling you, we're going to find somebody and we're going to send them, but we are planting a church in Redding, California. That is my goal. Amen. They need a gospel-centered church there. So we're going to do that. So be praying. But then they listed the top 10 most de-churched cities in the United States. Now that means cities where a big significant portion of the population used to be church-going people and now no longer are. And guys, Medford, Oregon is number 10 in the nation. 42% of the population of Medford, Oregon was a church-goer and now no longer is. 42%. That's huge. That's huge. As soon as I saw that, I've already reached out to a few different pastor friends of mine, and I'm like, hey, we'll host a meeting. Let's get some of these pastors together. We need to talk about this. Like, how do we... How do we reach these? How do we deal with what's going on? Maybe even build a focus group even with some of these people and say like, hey, 
just tell us, like, what's going on? But that's 42% of the population that we're not really even thinking about. So that's a big deal. But here's what's awesome about this. Most of the people that I talk to um, that, that aren't going to church now, and, and it could be for all sorts of different reasons. Sometimes it's like, I hate the church, I'm out. Sometimes it's just life got busy and I fell out of it and now I'm in a bad habit and I don't know what to do. Most of the people that I talk to when I'm like, yeah, come back to church, man, come see us. Almost always their reaction is something along the lines of, I know, I know, I need to get back there. What that means, guys, is they are not resistant to you inviting them to church. That's a safe invite that you're not risking ridicule or criticism or any of those kind of things. It's an easy invite. And many of the people who have left the church might have left over some of the things like we're going to be talking about even this very day. So let me encourage you, invite people to church. We have the room, especially when we pull that curtain up, we got room. Bring them in and let's see what the gospel might do in their hearts and lives. Amen? So today, we're, we're tackling this Mythbuster series, topic number two. Now, last week, we did a special Mother's Day edition of Mythbusters. We did the perfect home and perfect parents make perfect kids, which is obviously false. Amen? And so if you missed it last week, especially in particular if you're a mom, but parents in general, I want to encourage you, go back and listen and let the gospel relieve you of some of the stress and anxiety um, that comes along with parenting and just understand what, what the Bible actually teaches. And, and there, all the feedback I've gotten so far, at least, was that that was actually encouraging and burden lifting in many, many ways. So I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that. Today's might be a little bit different. Today's is more one of those that we tend to want to believe this because it feels better. It, it feels like a more hopeful thing. Um, and it's not just that. It's also maybe one of the most common out of the whole list of stuff we're going to be tackling this summer. might be one of the most commonly taught myths in churches all over the country. In fact, some of, in fact, I would say most of the biggest churches in the entire United States are churches that are built on the theology that promotes this. And so today's myth that we're going to talk about is this. A valley means a wrong turn. If we hit a valley in our life, when we hit difficulty, when we hit suffering, when we hit hardship, when we're going through the valley of the shadow of death, as Psalm 23 puts it, when we're going through a valley, there is a temptation to believe we've made a wrong turn. Surely this isn't where God would have me. And so we're going to start in Psalm 27 looking at this this morning. Now, I want to encourage you a couple of things about this. We, well, let's just dive into it first and go from there. Psalm 27, David writes this. Now, I want to give you some context for what David's saying in this particular text. Because David writes this as an exile. Now, some of you guys know the story. David, as a young boy, is anointed to be the next king of Israel. There was a king in Israel. His name was Saul. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And God removes his spirit from him, removes his uh, mantle from him and says, I'm going to give the mantle of king of my people to David. And he anoints David as king. And then David has this success. He, he has this big, giant victory over the big, giant Goliath. And as word gets out, of David's victory and all this kind of stuff, popularity is building for David, right? You know the story? So as popularity for David builds, uh, Saul, like most people in positions of power like that, not really anxious to just give it up. 
And so instead of going along with that, he decides, I'll just kill David and get him out of the way, and then my rival is gone, and I don't have a problem. And in the end, David ends up having to run for his life. He's living as an exile in the land that he's already been anointed to be king of. He's sleeping in caves. He's on the run. He's begging bread and food. He's in a really difficult season. And this psalm, Psalm 27, most people believe was written while David is on the run. So he is definitely in what we might consider a valley, a difficulty. And this he writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. It's good sounding stuff, right? I'm not going to lose. I got God on my side. Victory. I am more than conquerors. Stuff like that. Bumper stickers. Verse 3. Though an army encamp against me, which happened, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked for of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the roof, under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Now think about it for a second. What does it sound like David is saying? And Saul ain't getting to me. I don't care if he's coming after me. He ain't going to beat me. Nobody's going to beat I got the Lord on my side. He is confident. He is pumped up. David's never going to struggle. He ain't going through a valley. He's actually rocking this. He's doing great. He's super Christian. Is that what David's experiences actually were when we read the stories? No, oh, man, David struggled. David went through some stuff. At one point, David was so afraid of being killed by the king of a land he was hiding in, he pretends to be insane because he's scared and terrified. And so here he is in this psalm writing all these words that many people would come to and they would say, Christian, you're in a valley? You're suffering? Come on, man. The Lord is the light of your salvation. You ain't, you're not supposed to be in a valley. He has set us to walk in high places, not in valley, man. You need to just turn around. You took a wrong turn. You're in the wrong place. But God's got you. Well, here's the thing, guys. Psalms are actual songs. I don't know if you know that. That's what these are. They're songs. And songs are written not just to convey necessarily a truth, but they're written from places of emotion. Many of the Psalms are David's emotions and life experiences. And so here's David. He's writing what he knows. Oh man, the Lord is my protector. He is my light. He is my stronghold. He's got my back. He's writing all these things. And then in the middle of the Psalm, I believe there's a little tweak that happens. Because then look what he says, verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my mother and father have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. He hits this point in the middle of the psalm where I think his heart suddenly busts through. It's not just the theology he knows that he's singing now. Now his heart's coming in. And he's saying, Lord, look, 
I know that, that you've said, if I seek you, you'll find you. And I've been seeking you. You know my heart's been seeking you. Please don't hide from me. I feel pretty alone. I feel pretty stuck. And I'm inquiring and I'm doing all this. Lord, please don't cast me off. My parents have cast me off. Don't you cast me off. There's suddenly this plea that takes place that I believe is born from legitimate emotional experience of what's going on inside. And in those moments, what we know and then what we feel, there's a temptation sometimes for what we feel in here to suddenly become the theology that dominates our lives, not the theology that we know up here. You can always tell, like when hardship comes, that's one of the, hard, one of the things about hardship and, and suffering in valleys is it tends to cause these sort of almost spontaneous or natural reactions, and those reactions tend to expose to us what is the theology that actually governs our life, the one that we actually believe and the way that we live, not the one that we would claim we know, but what's in here, what's going on. Now guys, praise God for David. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will. He turns around. Verse 13, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of my Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. He's saying, listen, I'm going to wait for him because those things I said, I do know that they're true. And so now I'm going to preach that stuff to my own heart. And I'm going to wait for the Lord. I know he's going to deliver me and I'm not going to allow what I feel to cause me to bail. I'm going to wait for him, and I'm going to persevere, and I'm going to seek God. Now, the first thing we need to talk about as we're talking about this, this myth that's out there that valleys, difficulties, closed doors, things like that mean that you've made a wrong turn, you've done something or chose something that is outside of God's will, and now you need to figure it out and get back on the right path. That's what we're talking about here today. The first thing that we need to acknowledge before we talk about these things is they exist, like difficulties real. Um, church historically in many places has this mentality of kind of fake plastic Christiany. We'll just pretend that suffering doesn't come and we'll read these sort of early verses of David as we smile and walk through the carnage that's all around us in our life as if those things don't affect us because we fear that if we talk about difficulty, we either A, expose our own sin and weakness and we can't do that, we got to look strong, or B, we somehow tarnish God's reputation as if he's not powerful enough or strong enough to deal with the situations around us. So we've got to act like it doesn't bother us because we've got the power of Jesus on our side. And it's garbage. So the first thing we have to admit is that they are actually real. First Peter 4 tells us, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter writes to a church that's about to go through a whole lot of hardship. And he's, he's saying, listen, when the hardship comes, don't act like this is something weird. This is normal. This is what's, it's not strange. It should be familiar, is what Peter's saying. So don't be surprised when it comes. And here's why suffering, hardship, valley, difficulties is part of our neighborhood because our address is earth. You don't move to the airport and go, I am so surprised by all the noise of all the airplanes that fly around all the time. You, that just is a dumb idea. Your address is like one airport way. You should probably expect some noise, right? We live in earth. And what do we know about earth? 
earth is broken. When sin entered into the world, everything in earth fractured. And that fracture in earth, just by default, is going to cause problems and difficulties and valleys for us simply because of our address. When sin entered into the world, the relationship between man and nature was fractured and broken. And now there's difficulty, now there's pain, now there's sunburn and mosquitoes and no and snakes that bite and hurt and sharks that eat surfers and all those sorts of things. There's, there's diseases and pestilence and mosquitoes and thorns and hardship and difficulty and life because of the fall is going to be by default marked by a certain level of toil. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not, that comes no matter who we are. Not only that, there's fracture between man and man, or man and woman, or woman and woman, whatever the case may be. There's a fracture in the relationships between us who live here. Uh, uh, we're just broken. Adam and Eve, who once lived in harmony, when sin entered in the, into the world, there was finger pointing and backbiting, and then the next thing you know it, their very next sibling pair, we've got a brother who kills another, and that's the rest of the story all the way along. So, I don't care if you have one of the other myths that we're going to tackle at some point during this summer is the idea of a soulmate, that whole Jerry Maguire thing, you complete me, you know, that whole thing. Look, I don't care. You married the best, most godliest husband on the face of the earth. He's going to hurt you. He's going to frustrate you, vice versa, men and wives. Everyone's going to because we are broken people with selfish, sinful natures. And there's going to be times of frustration and angst and difficulty. Relationships are hard. They're marked by toil. It was promised to us in Genesis 3. And then the last part is that there's a fractured relationship between us and God. And what that means is that there's going to be times when we don't feel and understand the presence of God in the way that Adam once used to enjoy, walking through the garden in ease with God with him all the time. He used to literally walk in the garden with God. And then sin separated him from God. And now we have David, who God says is a man after God's own heart, writing, Lord, please don't turn your back on me. Please don't hide your face from me. Now look, we know the scriptures. We know those who have put their faith in Jesus, that you have been reconciled to him by the cross of Jesus. You've been saved by his grace and that you're a child of God and that he will, he will never leave you nor forsake you. You know this, but that is not what you always feel if we're being honest. Sometimes we feel alone. Sometimes we feel God is nowhere near us. Sometimes it's because we've walked away. Sometimes we don't understand, but we don't always feel this here because there is a fracture in the relationship even between God and man. What is yet to come is not yet fully here. And so difficulty is going to be real and, and especially for Christians because we are living as exiles in a world under the prince of the power of the air. We, we, we have been commissioned by God as ambassadors for the kingdom of God in a world that does not worship or honor God. So we are like ambassadors planted into Afghanistan or the, the worst, most hostile nation you can think of, and our flag is up. And the average person walking by does not like seeing our flag in their land. That's what Christians are. We live in enemy territory. We are exiles waiting for a home to come. And so that means sometimes people are going to throw rocks. 
either spirits or people. It's going to happen. We live in a place of conflict. It marks who we are. So we we need to first start and just let's not be fake and pretend like there's not difficulties in life. And it's just a dumb thing to fake. But but it's not simply enough to acknowledge that valleys exist. And here's why. Um, We are wired by God to be interpreters. Like we don't just look at events, we interpret them. Why did this happen? What does this mean? We do this by nature. This this is, Paul Tripp says, human beings who are made in the image of God do not live by the facts of their experiences, but based on their interpretation of the facts. We get our feelings involved, we get our experiences involved, we get our mind involved, and we tend to try to make sense or make some sort of understanding out of the things that happen, and then we live based on the understanding out of that thing. I think that'll become a little more clear as we go through here. I, and and what, here's what happens. When we hit difficulty and we feel in our heart the discomfort, we feel either separation from God, we feel questions, or we hear the advice of many of our friends that are saying, is that really what God had for you? And we start to interpret the events, especially if it's a long valley. Like the longer the valley is, the more tempted we are to believe this can't be God's will for my life. I must have made a mistake. And we start to interpret these things because we start to think, man, God only leads us to mountaintops though, right? God doesn't leave us in valleys. He only leads us to mountaintops. That's all. But this lingering difficulty, it's got to be a a wrong turn. This can't be right. So let's think about this for a second. First of all, with each one of these, uh, we want to start by where does this myth come from? Where does this mentality come from? This idea that lingering difficulty or resistance or suffering, that this can't be God's will for my life. So I'm off track somewhere, and I've got to fix this and get, fix this and get, get back. Where, where does this come from? Well, there's a, there's a few different texts that we can look at. So I'm going to show you on the screen here. You don't have to turn there. The first one, I want to bring up Exodus 13, verse 21. So in Exodus 13, God has delivered Israel from slavery to the Egyptians. And he's now leading them through the wilderness to the promised land that he's declared for them. And along the way, it says this, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. So we know this to be true, right? God, and this isn't figurative. There was a literal, actual pillar of fire at night, pillar of cloud by day. And so one of the interpretations I've heard about this, and, and this is what's called a, um, an allegorical interpretation. It's trying to draw some sort of meaning out of here that, that may not be explicitly stated. And, and so one of the interpretations that I've heard of this before, they call it like the made in the shade theology or interpretation. And, and they say, see guys, here's what happened. There was a pillar of fire at night so we could, people could see where God went. But in the daytime, even as they were in the desert, it was this big cloud that covered them and protected them from the heat of the sun. And so the people of Israel, they knew how to follow God because as the cloud would move, they would just stay in the shade. And if they got outside of God's leading, outside of the cloud, into the sunshine, well, that's where it's hot and difficult, and they would realize, that's not where God's leading me. I need to get back over here in the shade. And so the the moral lesson that comes out of that is, hey, following God, if you stay in God's will, you'll know because you've got it made in the shade. Hey, don't lie. That's common, like really common. Okay, well, it doesn't say that is the problem. It doesn't actually tell us that. No, nowhere in the scripture does it ever say that there was a cloud over them. It just talks about a pillar of smoke. And here's something else that we actually know historically. 
When armies in that day were traveling through regions, whether they were going to war or whatever the case may be, the camp of the general, like where the general or the the king or whatever it happened to be, always had a fire going at their tent, always. And when they would travel, they would carry fire with them. And the reason was so that everyone else in the army, no matter how far back you were, there was light to show where the general was at nighttime, and there was smoke to show where the general was and where he was leading in the daytime. The point was, so we know where to go. The general is leading us. And actually, the point originally back then was also, if we're attacked, we know where the general is. We know who we need to protect the most. So the, the point of that is not that God gave them shade so it was an easy walk through the desert. Actually, all accounts that you read of their walk through the desert make it look like it was a pretty tough deal. The point is that God is with them. Like, God didn't just deliver them from Egypt and go, all right, go that way, see you guys later. But that He was there, and He was with them, and He was leading them. That's what the text tells us. Let's consider another one. In Exodus 28, In Exodus 28, God is giving instruction to the people of Israel on how the priests who work for God were to dress. So he's he's building, you, if you will, a uniform for the priests who are going to be serving God. And here's what it says. You shall weave the coat in a checker work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you'll make coats and sashes and caps. You'll make them for glory and beauty. You'll put them on Aaron and your brother, on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs. So boxers is what it was. Verse 43, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to the holy place. Lest they bear guilt and die, this shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. So he has this this declaration that this is what the uniform of the priest, when they're serving me, serving as mediators between men and God, this is how they're to dress. And in there, and then later on, there's other stuff later on in the law as well that talks about their uniforms. But the idea is this, you're wearing fine linen, not wool. And, and so here's what I've heard taught along these sorts of lines. They'll say things like this, like, hey, listen, following God, serving Jesus, when you're doing what God calls you to do, it, it's not wool. Wool's itchy and abrasive and hot and uncomfortable and stinky and dirty. It's not wool. If you're following and serving God and you're feeling that, then that's not what God actually has for you because following Jesus and serving Je- Jesus, you'll know you're in your role because it's just like linen. It's just, which first of all, I think linen's uncomfortable. So I think that's a weird interpretation anyway. But that's what's been said. Following Jesus in service to him will be comfortable and it will fit and be cool and refreshing and it'll feel right. Is that true? It doesn't sound anything like any of the experiences of anyone who follows Jesus in the New Testament that I saw. And I can tell you this, like as a pastor, 17 years now, I think, as a pastor, um, Matt Chandler tells this story uh, really, really well. He he was sharing this at a pastor's conference one time, and and he said, he said, man, so many people, and him included, when he first started out, like you think you're getting into ministry, and it's just going to be this awesome, like we're just going to pray all the time and read the Bible, and it's just going to be this amazing, just float on clouds till we get to heaven. It's just going to be incredible. And he said, but the problem is, is that we think 
as people serving God, that our role will always be in the middle of the flock, just hanging out with all the healthy sheep. And in reality, what God's usually calling us to do is to be out on the peripheral with the unhealthy sheep that bite. And that has proven to be true. And any of you who have been serving Jesus for a significant period of time know that. Oftentimes, it doesn't feel like linen at all. It feels like wool, really itchy and really abrasive and really uncomfortable. But that doesn't mean that you're out where God doesn't have you. Not to mention, think of the stories of men like Jeremiah or Isaiah or Jesus, whose faithfulness to God's calling led them to really difficult and uncomfortable situations. Here's another one, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3 says this, And the angel of the church in Philadelphia write this, The words of the Holy One, a true one who has a key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And so this can be translated to say, hey, listen, when God's leading you somewhere, he'll open doors and he'll close doors. And so we'll even use this terminology sometime. Like we'll say things like, man, the doors just flew open and everything just kind of went. But the reverse mentality of that, if you're not careful, is every time you encounter any sort of resistance that feels like a closed door, that must not be where God's leading you. If that were true, there would be no missions work. Because missions work is full of shut doors that we have to find ways to get through. Missions work is full of difficult scenarios where it doesn't feel like the doors are just flying open. But what God's actually calling these guys, he's saying, in your difficulty and in your weaknesses, don't be afraid to be faithful to what I'm calling you to do just because you're weak or outnumbered because I still will take care of you. But he's calling them to faithfulness in the face of hardship. And you go on to read the rest of Revelation, it don't sound like easy stuff all the time. There's others too. Romans 8 talks about how we're more than conquerors. People, especially in the health, wealth, and prosperity movement, will go to that kind of stuff and they'll say, if you're in a difficulty, if you're in a season, if you're in a valley, man, you just need to enact your faith because we are more than conquerors. But the context of that is not talking about us conquering any difficulty that comes our way. The context of that is that we are more than conquerors over sin because of Jesus who triumphed over us and has given us eternal life. He'll go on to talk about the fact that the earth, all around around is groaning. You don't groan when you conquer. No one who wins a basketball game goes, we won. You groan when you're hurting, when you're tired, when you need help. But he does promise a redemption later to come. There's the, the other one is my favorite, or at least it was the most confusing to me early on. And you guys remember Evander Holyfield? Missing part of his ear, boxer, Evander Holyfield. So Evander Holyfield, remember he used to wear the purple garments all the time when he would fight, and he had a Bible verse on his robe and everything, which is great. We love that. His Bible verse, Philippians 4.13, you guys remember that? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Great verse. Amen? It's a great verse. It's weird to wear in a boxing context, I think, because (laughs) I can do anything through God who strengthens me, including beating that man to a bloody pulp. Through God, I'm going to wreck his life right now. I'm going to win millions of dollars and leave him passed out on the floor, all to the glory of Jesus. Like, that's a weird thing to do. And what happens if you're fighting another Christian? What are you supposed to make of that? That's strange. But the actual context of that has nothing to do with something like that. Paul writes it from where? 
prison. He writes from prison, and he says, guys, listen, don't worry about me. The gospel is going forth, and difficulty or not, man, I praise Jesus for my suffering if it means the gospel can go. And then what does he say? He says, man, because of the gospel, look, I have learned how to be content in every situation. I have learned how to be content when I am in seasons of wealth. I have learned how to be content in seasons of poverty. I can be content with much. I can be content with little. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What he's saying is, Christ gives me the ability to persevere through difficulty, not remove myself from it in those situations. It's important. But the primary place that I think we really get this isn't so much even bad Bible interpretation or any of that. The the primary place where we get that sort of mentality or can be tempted to believe that is just from right here. Because I don't care who you are, we desire comfort. We desire deliverance from difficulty. We desire not to suffer. And listen, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a memory trace to what we were created for in Eden and to what God is leading us for in heaven. I believe that's a good thing. The problem is, is we don't know what to do with it right now. I mean, the church in general, we have a really good idea what we've been saved from, and we have a pretty good idea what we're being saved to. We just struggle sometimes with how to appropriate things now in the in-between. Between the then and the when, we don't know what to do now sometimes. And when we over-appropriate, when, when our, uh, as the word is, over-realized eschatology, meaning our desire for things to come at the end of days, and that desire for comfort begins to permeate and control all translations and all interpretations of everything that's happening for us right now, that can be a really difficult spot to be in. We can really over-interpret what it means to live the quote-unquote victorious Christian life. And, and this is why it's really important for us to grasp. You might be saying, why are we even talking about this? That's not going to draw anybody in, Jeff. Why are we talking about this kind of stuff? Come to Jesus, you'll suffer. That, listen, here's why it's really, really, really important. Because when the bad times come, when we end up in the valley, and because of our address on this broken earth, I don't care what your belief is, your belief is not going to keep the bad times from coming. They're going to come. So when the valley gets here and you begin to try to interpret what's going on, here's what can happen. Instead of remembering, in the tr- the remembering the truth of Scripture and interpreting the situations around you through your knowledge of God and what He's doing, you'll start to translate and interpret who God is through the lens of the experiences going on around you. You'll start to go, well, I mean, I've heard that God's loving, but it doesn't seem that way right now. I've heard God wants to do good things for me, but it doesn't seem... I've heard God's always with me, but it sure doesn't feel that way right now. And I'm telling you right now, there's a lot of people in that 42% in the Rogue Valley that are no longer churched who have left the church because of that very thing. I tried Christianity. didn't work for me. And when I was suffering, I was struggling, I was alone, I couldn't talk to anybody because we all faked it everywhere we went, and I didn't know what to do, and all this stuff about God will get you through it, and all those kind of pep rallies and bumper stickers didn't seem to get me anywhere, so what's the point? Why go to church? There's no point to it. Happens all the time. And then we, if we're not prepared, if the church doesn't have a solid understanding and theology of suffering and difficulty, we will be completely unprepared for the difficulties that come. We will be completely naive to the temptations of the enemy when we're in the middle of those difficulties. And we will either be unwilling or unprepared to run to God with our difficulties. Instead, 
we'll take things on ourselves and try to be our own problem solvers and try to figure stuff out, or we'll just straight up walk away from God in general. How would a loving God allow this to happen? If God is so good and so loving, why does he let bad things happen to good people? The truth is, that's only happened one time in the history of the world. When Jesus Christ, the only good and pure person, was murdered on the cross for our sin, that was a bad thing that happened to a good person that God did amazing things out of. But we'll be unprepared for how to deal with that. So we need to replace lies with truth. That is a biblical principle. Replace lies with truth. So what does the Bible actually teach? Will you look at Hebrews 11? I have to confess I got the idea of this teaching from a high school kid in Cascade's senior Bible class this week. Um, every week I spend Fridays with, high, with uh, Cascade High School's senior Bible class, and we do like Q&A and hang out with those guys, and, and uh, they're getting out of school in like seven days or something like that, so they had no more questions. They were useless. And um, so I just started asking them all sorts of questions, and we ran out of things to talk about. And I was like, hey guys, help me with my sermon this week. I just started talking about this stuff. And one of the students raised their hand, and they were like, well, if you believed that, what would you do with this text? And when I read it, I was like, oh, bless you. You have written my sermon. Hebrews 11. Now, in Hebrews 11, this is the hall of faith. If you're a baseball fan, hall of fame has all the heroes of baseball's history. This is the biblical version of the hall of faith. All the heroes of faith who have followed God, and the Bible is upholding them, even in spite of weaknesses and difficulties, as examples and models of faith. Men we should learn from, women we should learn from, right? And he goes through all these different people, which we'll get to in a second. And you come to verse 32. And look what it says. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samuel, or excuse me, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. That sounded pretty good, right? That sounded like more than conquerors. Anything that came our way, we refuted. The Avengers had nothing on us. That's what it sounds like, right? Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Yes, that's what faith means. All we are conquerors. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life? Wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought it's better life, best life now. You mean the, the, the best life they were living for was not this one, but a different one? I don't see that book in the bookstore. Verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. Um, not Oregon stoned, just to clarify. You have to be clear these days. Bible stone through rocks killed you. Okay, different kind of stoned. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. That's very clear. They were killed with the sword. They went, in, they went about in skins of sheep and goats. That's not linen, by the way. Destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, 
since God has provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. You hear that, guys? The people who were the models of faith, man, they, they walked through fire without getting burned. They stood in lion's den without lions ever touching them. They, they were refuted the enemy. They walked in victory. They also suffered and stayed faithful. They also claimed Jesus as they got cut in half, literally. They also stayed faithful to God as they walked through the wilderness in difficulty and in poverty for the rest of their life. They did not reject Jesus even though they inherited nothing in this earth and they waited to raise again into a new life and that was the inheritance that they were living for, not this. They didn't end up in valleys and always say, this must not be for me. But they held on to God, to his promises, and were faithful as they walked through them. And they're upheld as this is the example of what a man of faith is. There are people out there right now, all over the world, teaching right now, Oh, if you had enough faith, you wouldn't be sick. That's just your weak faith. You need to confess that. Could not be less biblical. And there's more. I mean, all those quotes, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Yes, he does. And for Peter, the wonderful plan for God's life included eventually being crucified, upside down as history tells us. For John, God loved him. He was the disciple Jesus loved. That's what he's called. God loved him and had a wonderful plan for his life. But the plan for John also included that he was boiled in oil and exiled to an island. But God used those things. And guys, the people, even in the list in Hebrews 11, that he goes through down and mentioned, Noah was on the ark for over a year. Just think about that for a minute. The logistics alone will blow your mind. Abel was murdered. Abraham was childless for years. And when he finally had the promised son, not to mention the one he went and got on his own, which was a bad idea, uh, God calls him to sacrifice him. Jacob ran for his life from Esau. Moses was born in Egypt, then lived 40 years in exile as a shepherd. And then when Israel was going through the wilderness, he was the leader of that complaining bunch. That wasn't easy. Definitely wasn't Lennon, I would imagine. David lived on the run from Saul for a significant period of time. Uh, on and on and on through the Bible, here's what we actually see. No one in the Bible, no one, including Jesus, was immune to the valleys. No one. All of them went through hardship. All of them went through difficulty. All of them suffered, everyone. It's not, as Peter said, something strange to the people of God. It's something familiar to the people of God. Other scriptures that we could bring up, we'll just blow through them really fast, just so you know I'm not taking one thing out of context. James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Philippians 4, we mentioned, but see it for yourself here. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, 
struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. Let me point out in this verse in particular, there's two things given in every one. The suffering is given, it's the reaction to suffering Paul is upholding. Not getting rid of suffering, but the perseverance through it that he's talking about. 1 Peter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And Romans 8, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Unless you miss that part, he's not saying, oh, people before Jesus suffer, but once they get Jesus and have faith, they're not going to suffer anymore. Who's he talking to? Sons and daughters of God. As children of God, we will suffer, he says. So that's what the Bible says. So then what do we do with it? The Bible says we're going to suffer. So how do we approach them? How ought we to think about them? I'm going to give you guys three questions that I want you to, to write down. These are kind of diagnostic questions that can be helpful for us thinking about valleys and difficulties as they go. The first one is this. Here's a good question to ask yourself. Why am I here? In the middle of suffering, why am I here? And the reason that's an important question is because, number one, we're going to be wired to try to interpret that anyway, but it's good to be aware that there are different kinds of valleys. So, first of all, there's valleys God sends us to. There is such a thing as a God-sent-me-here valley. Some valleys, it's just what God has called us to do. It's going to be difficult. It's not going to be comfortable. We are following God's Word verbatim and doing exactly what He called us to do, and that means hardship and difficulty. We see it with the people of Israel. As God leads them out of Egypt, they're going through a desert. Deserts are just uncomfortable. It was going to be a long journey. It was going to be difficult. They are following God. He's right there in front of them. But it's hard. And you see their grumbling. You see their temptations. Even as they said, man, did, did God bring us out here to die? We could have, we're going to starve to death out here. We would have been better in Egypt was the temptation they faced. So sometimes following God leads you into those sorts of difficulties. God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted 40 days. Like we, we, we don't think about this always, I don't think, as, as, in the same kind of realities we really should because we, oh, well, Jesus is God. He was fine. He's fully man, 40 days in the wilderness, no food. That's suffering. Some of you guys are suffering right now because I haven't gotten you guys out to brunch yet. It's true. You guys know Randy Alcorn? Some of you guys know Randy Alcorn, fantastic writer. Um, speaking of what God has in store for us, his book, Heaven, is still pretty much considered probably the uh, authoritative book on the subject, on what heaven's like. It's an amazing read. But Randy Alcorn, get this, in the late 80s, he and a group of pastors in Oregon, up in Portland, took part in a completely peaceful, nonviolent um, display. It wasn't, I wouldn't even call it protest so much. It was almost like a vigil. Um, regarding abortion outside of an abortion clinic in Portland. No laws were broken. Uh, no damage was done to any buildings. No one was accosted. I don't even know that they spoke from what I understand in the story. I'm not totally sure, but completely peaceful, nonviolent. Well, I don't know if you know this, Oregon, especially in the Portland area, tends to be a little liberal. 
And so uh, they also, by the way, Oregon tends to like protests, it seems. Like there's protests all over the place, chaining themselves to trees, all this kind of stuff. But those two, those two forces, we protest and we're liberal, came into conflict over the topic of abortion, and the courts there decided to make an example out of Randy Alcorn in particular, out of this group of pastors there. And so they sentenced him to jail time and allowed a civil suit by the abortion clinic against Randy Alcorn and rewarded the abortion clinic damages of $8.4 million that he himself under the government of Oregon, is required to pay to that specific abortion clinic. So he had a conflict. If I honor what God's asking me to do, how do I even do this? How do I pay money that I know is going to go into an abortion clinic and be used for something I think God believes is abhorrent in in murdering babies? What am I supposed to do? So you know what he did? He quit his job as the pastor there, and then they rehired him at the church at minimum wage because if you only make minimum wage, state law, they can't garnish your wages. And so now to this day, Randy Alcorn works, writes, pastors a church, minimum wage so that he can stand for what he believes is right. He's doing what God led him to do. He's standing for righteousness, and look, Imagine living in Portland on minimum wage, grown adult. Not easy. So that's a God-led valley. It's difficult, but there's no need to go, I did something wrong here, I'm outside of God's will. They're going to bomb me right now. Um, so so that's, that's the, what, what the question is again, why am I here? So the first one is because uh, uh, God sent me here. But there's another kind of valley that we do need to acknowledge. There's the I messed up valley. There's the, yeah, I took a wrong turn. I sinned. I have gone against what God has called me to do. And now I'm in a valley of difficulty by my own doing. And that's an important one to ask. Now, here's the good news. Those valleys are usually pretty easy to discern. God does not typically say, um, figure out what your sin is. And if you guess right, I'll let you out. That's not usually how it works. Usually, if you pray, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me, he'll show you pretty quick. Now, you might not have eyes to see. We might not want it, but that's pretty common. But there's the reality that bad decisions can lead us into difficulty. In, in senior Bible just this week, they were asking me different questions. They're asking advice and stuff like that. And, and one of them said something about, do you have advice for college or do you have advice for the rest of life or whatever? And I was quoting, it was a comedian. I can't remember who it was, but he, he actually said, people say that life is short. And he goes, maybe, but listen, if you make bad decisions, life is long, really long when you make bad decisions. And so we see this in the Bible too. You guys remember Jonah? God calls Jonah and says, hey, Jonah, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go over to those people over there and you're going to go share the gospel with them. And and you're going to go tell them that they need to repent from their sin, that they need to follow the true king, the true God. um, And if they don't, they're going to face judgment and destruction. And Jonah hates those people. And so his feelings of anger towards those people supersede what God actually is calling him to do. So he says, I'm not gonna. And he gets on a boat and he goes the opposite direction. And a huge storm comes. And this massive storm and the ship's gonna go down and all the people on the boat are wondering what's going on. And what is it they're doing? Notice, they're trying to interpret the trial, aren't they? They're going, why is this happening? What's going on? What is it? And what does Jonah say? And this is me. 
I've sinned. The reason that I'm in this boat is because I sinned. You guys just bought tickets to a really bad ship today. And so they throw him off the boat. Fish eats him, takes him where he's supposed to be. You guys know the story. Sometimes we're in difficulty because we're in a valley that's a result of sin. It's one of our own choosing. We, we talked about David. He's in that valley for a particular season as Saul's chasing him. Later, he becomes king, and he will go through some valleys, and almost every single one of the difficulties that David goes through that are such struggles for him can be traced all the way back to one event involving a woman named Bathsheba. And those are valleys of his own choosing. So, so here's, here's the thing with those. God is really good to show us what those valleys are. We'll talk about what to do with them in just one second. There is one third type that we do need to, to acknowledge, and this is just, it's lame, it's just the way it is. That's valleys beyond our understanding. We, we just don't always know. And, and Job is the poster boy for this, right? I actually was attempting to do this sermon without Job because like everybody goes to Job. And, and sometimes I think Job becomes unrelatable because his struggle was so big and so vast. But here's the sad thing about the story of Job. We know it's not because he sinned, because the Bible, God actually calls him, I mean, God's applauding him for his righteousness. And we know that, that it's this situation that's going on. And what, what's, what's Satan actually saying? Well, God, the reason that Job is so righteous and the reason that Job follows you is because he's got it made in the shade. He's got it made. You've given him everything. Nothing harms him. But if you take away his comfort and you make Job go through a valley, he'll turn and he won't follow you anymore. Watch and see. And so God says, okay, let's do this. And this grand experiment comes. But the hard thing is, is that as far as we know from Scripture, Job never understands why he went through all the hardships that he does. He never does. But to his credit, all of the difficulties and the fears and the doubts and the worries resolve in a solid trust in God. And Job becomes our poster boy for that too. So sometimes there's just valleys this side of eternity we don't understand. All right, so three different types of valleys. Ones God sent us to, ones we got ourselves into, and ones we just don't know. But we need to discern from the very beginning what kind of valley we're in. Now, the second question that we're to ask is this, how do I respond? And you need to know to the best you can what kind of valley you're in to help you determine how to respond to said valley. Because, for example, if we're in a valley of our own doing, then we need to change direction then the myth becomes true in that situation. You've made a wrong turn. You need to immediately retrace your steps and get back to where you're supposed to go. And, and let me say this too. Two things about having to do that. Uh, number one, you tend to end up in those valleys through baby steps. A, l- a little bit of a give here, a little bit of a give here, a little bit of a give here, and you end up way off track in this situation you never understood. But the way that you get out of those valleys is usually a giant leap. Like you, you just change everything. You confess what's going on. You put that whole thing away and you go back. So there's this story in Judges. It's a great example of this. So Israel, um, Israel Judges is a mess and, and a really good example over and over of all this stuff. Israel starts taking on these foreign idols and they're worshiping all these foreign idols and, and neglecting the God of their salvation. And so the Ammonites, I believe it is, or one of the other ites, termites, Hittites, whatever it is, comes in. And, and, and they've got Israel under a thumb of oppression. They're horrible and mean to them, and Israel's struggling. And along the way, Israel finally turns to God and says, Lord, help us. And you know what God says? God says, why, why don't you ask your idols, see if they help? He says, no, ask your idols. You guys have all these idols, go ask them, see if they can help you. 
And Israel even comes back again, Lord, help us. And he's like, no. And then they come to their senses and they realize what's going on and they purge the land of those false idols. And that's when God comes in and says, these are my people and delivers them. Now, the second thing, though, about that is, how many of you have ever been to Crater Lake and hiked down to the water on that far side of Crater Lake? You've done the hike, right? That's a great hike, isn't it? It's gorgeous, and the water's beautiful, and it's all downhill all the way. It's great, easy hike. Take, how long does it take to get down there? Like five minutes? It's almost nothing to get down there to the water. What's the hike out like? Takes a little longer, doesn't it? It's a little more exerting, isn't it? And guys, that's just a sad reality sometimes when we make these sort of bad decisions. Sometimes it takes a long time to hike out of those valleys. It doesn't mean God's not with you, but sometimes it's hard. Be faithful anyway, and this is something I'll just throw in. I don't even have this in my notes, and we don't have time for it, but avoid the shortcuts. Avoid the shortcuts. Shortcuts, when you've gotten yourself in trouble because you sinned against someone, will be to minimize your sin or to pretend it didn't really happen or maybe only confess part or hide some. Don't do that. It only prolongs the valley. Make the jump and go. Avoid the shortcuts. Shortcuts. But on the, on the God sent me here kind, you persevere. That's how we approach them. We just persevere. Like Daniel under Nebuchadnezzar, like over and over in Scripture, like Jesus, like uh, over and over we have examples where we go, this is where God has led me. I understand and believe this is where God has led me, so I trust that this is where God has led me, so I'm not going to turn around and run from where God has led me. I'm going to trust that he's strong. I'm going to trust that he provides. I'm going to trust that he's with me. And I'm not going to take the temptation to retrace my steps and go a different direction. I won't do that. So the questions again are, what kind of valley am I in? How do I respond? And then the third one is this, what can I learn? Because no matter what valley we're in, no matter what suffering we face, no matter what difficulty we're up against, there's always something that we can learn and grow from in it. Um, Charles Spurgeon said this, the wilderness was the Oxford and Cambridge for God's students. There is no university for a Christian like that of sorrow and trial. Valleys of pain teach us how to empathize and support others that are struggling. Valleys of suffering teach us how to trust God in hardship. Valleys of self-induced hardship teach us obedience and the importance of following God. But this is why James 1 verse 2 through 4 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, why is this better? Because the reason that so many churches in the United States are massive, massive churches is because people will stand there, pastors will stand there and say, God only wants wealth and prosperity and good for you, and that's what people want to hear. And so people will come to that because it sounds better than what I just told you. It sounds better to say God doesn't want you to suffering, he's going to fix all of it. That sounds way more attractive than suffering's part of being a Christian and following Jesus. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. It's going to be kind of familiar to our life. Way better. So why is this better than the alternative to that? And here's why. The first thing is this. We tend to evaluate wins and failures based on reward now, and we live in a pretty materialistic society that we tend to uh, um, lean more towards rewards of comfort, wealth, and health. 
So, so instead of looking at heaven, we want, we want heaven now, and we want comfort and all those kind of things now. But what the Bible actually upholds is that Christians who are followers of Jesus, faithful Christians who have been saved, we get God. Like, you've got to understand that. We get God. It's, I mean, it's, it's almost like, and this is such a bad comparison, honestly, it's almost like having the genie versus having one of his wishes. Like, we get God. That's the purpose through all of these things. When, he, when David writes in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're getting me out right now. No. Why? Because thou art with me. God is with us in our suffering. He is Emmanuel. We get God. And it is better to realize God is with you in suffering than to think he's the genie to, that removes you from it. Because here's why. When you're not suffering, when you're, you're, you don't need God in that situation. You don't need God. He's just your, he, he's AAA. He's 911. He gets you out of the hassle and then you don't need him the rest of the time. No, no, no. God is with us even in difficulty. And the other thing is this. If we believe that suffering isn't part of God's will, and I know I'm running out of time, but listen, this is important. If we believe suffering's not part of God's will, then we will end up going it alone in suffering. Because if we in this church have that mentality, and oh man, suffering and difficulty means you're outside of the will of God, then no one's going to admit they have suffering and difficulty. They're going to look around on a Sunday morning and watch everybody worshiping with hands up and all this stuff and be like, man, I don't even feel like lifting my hands today. I am weak and tired and suffering, but these guys all got it, so I better do that because I don't want them to think that I'm doing something wrong. And, and suddenly it becomes this fake plastic Christian, and you will go it alone. And listen, guys, our experience in suffering should be greatly affected by involvement with the body of Christ. Like you we are designed to come alongside one another in suffering and bear one another's burdens. And look, Jesus does not need to be propped up by your faking it. His reputation will survive. In fact, running to the body of Christ or running to Jesus preaches the gospel. It says, I can't do this on my own. I need help. I need a savior. But pretending that we have it all together and faking and acting like we're not actually going through stuff or acting like the suffering we're going through isn't affecting us preaches a false gospel that we don't need Jesus and that we're strong enough ourselves. So an acknowledgement and understanding within the church of suffering will bond the church together and it is a better witness to the world out there because they, they go through suffering and they're looking for hope in it. And we can model a better hope. Amen? And then two other things quickly. The gospel teaches us a couple of things about suffering difficulty. The first thing is the gospel teaches us what God's real priorities are. And this is what I mean. Jesus didn't die on the cross for our comfort. That was not his primary. He cares about our bodies. He cares about what happens to us. God is not distant and aloof going, oh, buck up, get over it. But that wasn't his number one priority. His number one priority was saving us from sin. If God's number one priority was our comfort, then he is failing miserably. That's not what the primary goal. And the reason that we haven't now been delivered into eternity now so that we can have said comfort is because there are other people who have not yet come to faith in Jesus and they're still dead in their sins. So we endure suffering right now in a fallen world, whether it's our fault or not, because like Jesus, we suffer on behalf of those who have not found Jesus yet. And we willingly go through it and endure it so that they might come to salvation. That's Christ-like suffering. 
He's waiting on people to accept him, and we, we got to be on board with that. And, and, and the second thing is that the cross shows us that God can bring the best things out of the worst things. Like, what's worse than killing Jesus? And what's better than the grace and mercy and forgiveness and healing that came through the event on the cross? And he'll do that through our suffering if we'll let him. Now, I did exactly what I swore I was not going to do. I told the last service that I was not going to go, I was going to fix it because I hate going through all this stuff. And then I'm like, and here's what you do. And I have to like blitz through it. And you're like, oh, you left me hanging and now I'm suffering. So I just got five words for you that I want you guys to write down. And I want you to consider these things every day in your devotional life as you're, as you're thinking through these kinds of things so that you are not only prepared for suffering yourself, but that you can walk others through. And I promise you this is fast. The first word is this. Number one, I want you to gaze every single day. Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Know who He is. Know how good He is. Know how beautiful and awesome and loving He is so that when trials come, you won't start to use the experience as a way of translating God to go, this is difficult so God doesn't love me. No, no, no. Every single day, gaze upon the beauty of God. Wherever you're reading in the Bible, if it's not a section that you feel like you're seeing that clearly, when you're at the end of that section, quick, flip to Isaiah 40, flip to Ephesians 1, flip to Colossians 1, and gaze every day on the beauty of God. Number two is that you need to remember. Remember who you are in Him, because this is the awesome truth. The beauty of God that you're beholding isn't just something that only concerns God, it redefines who you are. And so you can remind yourself, that God is my Father, that God is my friend, that God is my Savior, that, that He's not distant, He's not abandoned me, He's my Father. Remember who you are in Him. Number three, rest. And listen, I don't mean rest horizontally. Rest horizontally, well that sounds really good right now taking a nap, but like rest horizontally means like I have rest because all these things around me are not bothering me right now. That's not what I mean. Rest vertically in Him, in who He is, regardless of what's going on around you. Train yourself to rest and trust in Jesus. Number four, act. Learn how to live out of that. Learn how to live out of your uh, knowledge of who God is. Let that head knowledge of who God is drop into your heart so that that's the default spontaneous reaction when difficulty comes. Learn to live out of who God is. And then number five, believe. But, but you've got to believe in two different things. Listen, believe in the future promises of God. Heaven is going to be amazing, and we should want that, and we can't wait for that. Amen? Like, you should want that. But you also need to believe in the current mission of God that's still trying to get other people there. And understand that even if we go through hardship for the mission of God right now, as Paul wrote, our present suffering's pale in comparison to what God has for us then. So we will believe in the mission of God now and believe in the rewards that are to come unashamedly and the greatness and the comfort of being face-to-face with our King and our God. Amen? So a valley does not necessarily mean a wrong turn. Valleys are opportunities for growth. They are things to be interpreted and understood, but I want us to have the tools to understand them rightly so that we can reach out and minister the gospel and grace to others, both in here and outside of our walls. Does that make sense? Man, I had to talk fast. Okay, I'm going to shut up now right after I pray. Let's all stand and pray, can we?
I want to encourage you. Did I tell you about next week yet? Okay, I'm going to give you next week's topic. Some of these are, people have asked, can we get a list? Ah, we're still wrestling with some of these, so I don't have a list for you yet. But next week, um, the topic that we're going to tackle is um, the myth that Christians never suffer from mental illness issues. Depression, anxiety, that kind of stuff. It'll tie somewhat with some of this today. Um, but here's the cool thing. West Town is the, or was the lead pastor of Ecclesia in Eugene. He's now down in the San Diego area down there. And he's been now going around and speaking, blogging, writing, doing podcasts, all this stuff specifically about the issue of Christians, mental illnesses, depression, anxiety, all that kind of stuff. And he's going to be with us here next week speaking about that particular topic. So you're going to be really blessed. He is a fantastic teacher. And this is a subject he's been really nailing down lately and, and really involved in. So we're really fortunate to have him. So be here next week. And if you know people that struggle with some of those kind of things from time to time, man, bring them. They will be so encouraged, I promise you. So next weekend, I know it's Memorial Day weekend. There'll be plenty of other time. And if it's still cold like this, you don't want to go outside anyway. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this understanding from your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the beauty that is in this, that it is way better to be with you in difficulty than apart from you in comfort. So may we, Lord, understand the nearness of you. May we understand your beauty, our calling, all of these things. I pray for people in this room, Lord, who are experiencing difficulty because of their own decisions and sin. I pray, God, you would real, help them to realize what those things are and by faith grant them repentance that they might turn and walk on high ground, Lord, that they might get out of those valleys that Satan wants to keep them hemmed in by and that they might realize your love and your, um, just your care for them and be reconciled to you. And I pray for others, Lord, who are suffering or going through difficulty because of just whether it be conditions of the fall or whether it be something you've led them to. God, may you grant them and may you grant all of us endurance, perseverance, that we might stand by faith, that we might avoid the temptations of the enemy, that we might follow you and that we might live for the reward to come, that we know we, this is not our home. There are such better things waiting for us. So may we willingly lay our life down now so that we might be raised again to the new life that you offer. And I pray, God, that you would use this church to witness and to reach people who are struggling. I pray for that 42% that no longer comes to church. Lord, may, may this be a haven for people to be restored to you in every church in this valley. And I pray, God, that there would be a better gospel and a better witness for us to share with them because of the truth we see in your word this morning. And so we thank you, Lord for the good times and the bad. Lord, we praise your name no matter what. We thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for your patience. Have a great week. Love you.